0: Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey.
1: You know, the idea that Donald Trump said just several days ago, this was a Democratic hoax. What in God's name is he talking about? What in God's name is he talking about? Has he no shame? The idea that this is not a pandemic, that this is not worldwide, that it's not going to get worse, doesn't mean we're going to die but it's going to get worse is absolutely bizarre. You know, we're dealing with an evolving situation. We're dealing with clearly an emerging infectious disease that has now reached outbreak proportions and likely pandemic proportions.
0: The administration has had months to prepare for this and it's unacceptable that people in my state and nationwide can't even get an answer as to whether or not they are infected. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So Mayor Pete is out. The great Amy Klobuchar is out and Elizabeth Warren is, let's face it, powering down. Warren's too good for us anyway. We American schmucks with our sick dear leader rallies, our surging racism and our weird tweets. We just don't deserve a real leader and we're not getting her. That leaves us the geezers, Biden and Bernie on Super Tuesday. You know, I was thinking today, I wish there were less data and more like those folksy mid century axioms in today's election prognostication, like the whole as goes Minnesota, so goes the nation, or you vote for the guy you want to have a beer with. Or maybe something more intense like every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods, or an election is a moral horror, as bad as a battle except for the blood, a mud bath for every soul concerned in it. Or maybe Abe Lincoln elections belong to the people, he said. It's their decision. If they decide to turn their back on the fire and burn their behinds, then they will just have to sit on their blisters. Yeah, tell them, Abe. I know we have one maxim that's foolproof this time around. It always, always works in American politics, and this year's no exception. Ready? It's really melodious and rhythmic. Never elect the woman. Just never, ever elect the woman. I can't remember if it was Chelsea Handler or H.L. Mencken who said that or if it's just the wisdom of the ages, but I know that when the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana gets more votes for president than two jaw-droppingly accomplished and charismatic U.S. senators, well, gender is in play. And when an ancient do-nothing shouting revolutionary gets more votes by far than the powerhouse Elizabeth Warren, well, you know how I feel about Bernie. Still, California, if you're listening... Vote Joe Biden. My guest today to talk about none of this but just pandemic preparedness. And actually, he does touch on the relationship between coronavirus and the primary is Dr. Greg. Dworkin. He's a Daily cost contributing editor and the chief of pediatric pulmonology and medical director of the Pediatric Inpatient Unit at Danbury Hospital in Danbury, Connecticut. I can think of no better person to talk to about coronavirus. He has an excellent bedside manner. I'm going to ask him on Trumpcast basically to come to the side of the bed of the nation, wipe our brows with a cool cloth, and give it to us straight, Doc. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Um, It's a huge pleasure to have you here. I only really know you from the um, deafening, pounding music that plays in the nightclub that is Twitter.
1: Uh, It's a great place to meet people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful because it just allows you to touch base with experts. So it's an incredible learning machine.
0: It really is. I had... The honor of having my German corrected by the former president of Estonia today, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) Tomas Ilves, and I was just like, you know, in that this website is free mode, um, that I can't believe we can all go to Twitter.com and meet people like former presidents of Estonia and you, Dem from Connecticut... Not only a astute opiner on politics, but also the chief of pediatric pulmonology uh, it, at Danbury Hospital in Danbury, Connecticut, um, which is a kind of awesome combination and, and quite um, apropos for our conversation today about coronavirus.
1: You know, it's it it is an interesting conversation, uh, and I have a lot of different hats. At one point, uh, a decade ago, I was working very hard on pandemic preparedness with HHS and CDC. And uh, at times I'm a doctor, at times uh, on politics, Mm -hmm. at times uh, a media critic. And it turns out all of those things are relevant right now.
0: That's right. So you're the ideal guest. Maybe I can just ask you an open-ended question. Sure. What are we to... We're, we're among friends. Okay, <laughs> exactly. But just, just between us. What should we make of this? I'm one of those with a tendency to underreact to threats of disease. And that has as many downsides as hypochondria, I might add. Mm-hmm. But what should we do? I've seen everything from crazy lists that say I need a lot of canned goods Don't do that. to you know, treat it like the flu. Don't do that. Okay.
1: So uh, let me try to put this in a little bit of perspective. And my feeling always is, no matter what kind of numbers you give people, you really have to give somebody narrative. I think you'd appreciate mm. that being the writer that you are. And so let's talk a little bit about this situation and reference it to things we already know. If that sounds fair. And what I wrote this morning is that uh, we talk a little bit about flu when we're talking about coronavirus, because flu is something we're familiar with,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Coronavirus is different, but it's not that different. And humans need a framework to compare. So, coronavirus and flu. And it turns out seasonal flu is pretty bad, actually, but people kind of price it in to their normal, average, everyday risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you may remember President Trump saying, oh my gosh, 60,000 people a year could die from flu. I didn't know that. And that's actually a pretty normal reaction when you tell folks that. Yeah. Because 60,000 people a year die from flu. And maybe you didn't know that either. And yet people price in flu. I'm used to flu. It happens every year. No big deal. 60,000, but I'm not one of them. So, you know, so what? Uh, It turns out coronavirus isn't knocking off that number of people yet, Mm. but it might because it's easier to catch than flu. And uh, it's probably a bit more deadly than flu, although it's not the 1918 flu pandemic, which is the other end of the spectrum that you could compare it to. So the way I'd like to think about it is, first of all, the doctors and the scientists and the public health people look at it one way and the public looks at it a different way. But if you're in charge... If you're uh, Tony Fauci or if you're what Mike Pence's role is supposed to be, mm-hmm. you have to look at it both ways. You have to look at it at the way the public health experts look at it and the epidemiologists, but you also have to look at it the way the public does. And so you have to balance letting people know that this is something that's going to get worse before it gets better, but it's not so bad that it's going to be the movie Contagion.
0: Okay, got it. That actually does kind of clarify for me sort of the scale of this. Now, as for the 60,000 people, I think I've known that number at various times, but I've known that on a narrative level because periodically, you know, someone I know knows someone or it's one degree of separation from someone who's died of the flu. Yes. And, and then
1: it brings it into into great relief when, you know, I always tell people, look, what makes it a bad flu season is if you get it. Right. Right. If you don't get it, it was a, it was a great flu season. I don't care what numbers I read.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you say that you say that it's uh, baked in or what did you say? It's factored in, I guess, yeah. to our decision making. It's, it's it. priced in the way they priced do in the market. In. Yes. And that brings me to the market. So it does perpetually surprise me that the first response we have to news of a pandemic um, or maybe maybe the second response after it gets out of China is not to hug our loved ones or even to wash our hands, but to sell all our stock. Right. I don't think this happened during the um, Black Death. Well, you have to
1: have stock to sell stock. That's right.
0: But but lots of us have 401ks or small investments. And among the things that would seem to be proactive to do, kind of messing around with your investments, it just it's this kind of um, the election of Trump would seem to augur more about end times than the appearance of a SARS-like new virus. And yet. We're acting like this one is much more significant than even all the bad things that have happened in the past four years.
1: Okay, but, but again, let's put this in perspective. Uh, imagine, if you will, that you're not looking at the effect of the market on predicting the end of the world, but rather, and I'm not giving stock advice, I don't know anything about it, but step back and say, look, the people who are trying to figure out how your companies are gonna do, Apple or uh, cruise lines, uh, are trying to figure out what it means if there's disease overseas and how does it affect my company and my earnings. Mm -hmm. So if I am uh, a airline company that sells airlines, that may or may not have any impact because we're talking long-term, but if I am a travel company, I have a feeling right now, um, cruise ships to Iran are not a popular thing to try and sell. Yes. So if that happens to be your company, you're going to take a hit. But what if you're Apple and you make stuff and all the stuff is made in China? There's all these stories and pictures about uh, you know Long Beach and California and how it's empty and how the, the uh, container ships usually come there and now they're not. And so that's going to have an impact on your company. So when you think of it that way, it's not surprising that the uh, stock market, which has nothing to do with the actual economy, uh, is going to drop.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that seems absolutely right. I just um, read this morning, and maybe you can tell me if this is disinformation or should be rechecked, but not only are, you know, so many consumer goods made in China, but 80% of the ingredients in our medicine here are made in China. Yeah. If the disease and the cure exists, you know, in China... That's troubling.
1: But you're thinking about it logically. Okay. And I'm going to use a different analogy. I said that you sometimes have to think about coronavirus like it were the flu, because at least flu is something we're familiar with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about predicting the future. And I'm going to compare this coronavirus story to the Democratic primary. Okay. That's weird. Why would you do that? Yeah. Well, look at it this way. Last week, there was a front runner. This week, as of Saturday, there's a completely different narrative now we're talking about Joe, the comeback uncle, mm-hmm. and things change. But what about all the stuff you said last week? Isn't it like, are you changing your mind? Well, it's not that I'm changing my mind. It's that things changed. Things change over time. Yeah. And uh, the results from South Carolina are not the results from Iowa. So once you have that information, it's good to change your perspective about what you think is going on. We've moved from the very beginning where Joe is the frontrunner, to Bernie is really in strong position, to it's really a situation where Bernie's in strong position, but it could be a brokered convention or a, or a contested one, and nobody knows nothing. And all of that's true, and it's not because we got it wrong last week. So if you're thinking of, okay, well, what are the numbers uh, of coronavirus here in the country? How many cases do we have? Uh, is it last week you said there were, you know, Trump said in his... Uh, is uh, a press conference, there was only 10, but actually now there's well over 70. And yet there may even be estimated hundreds, if not thousands of cases, including uh, Washington State, where you know a lot of this is going on. And why are those numbers changing? Uh, well, again, let's go back to politics. Have you ever seen a poll? Have you ever seen a poll in the crosstabs? Have mm-hmm. you ever seen somebody take the same numbers and interpret it differently? Have you seen those polls change over time? The numbers inform our narrative. But that narrative is really not fixed.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the narrative has to change and keep up. And so that's what we're trying to do with this coronavirus situation. And I hope that makes sense.
0: It absolutely makes sense. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to add to it. You said that, you know, the the numbers inform the narrative. The narrative also informs how we're reading the numbers mm-hmm. or what happens to the numbers. So, for instance, as with the primary, the predictions become part of the event. So whatever uh, you mentioned, Anthony Fauci, right? Um, yep. He's the uh, American immuno- immunologist who's an expert in in, in many ways on yeah. on Infectious epidemics.
1: disease expert uh, infectious NIH diseases and not CDC.
0: He um, has you know lent his voice to this, and other more responsible or informed people have talked about this. And then, of course, there's been. Sort of gobbledygook from Mike Pence and Donald Trump, and you know the idea that if you're speaking, you're supposed to be reassuring markets or ensuring your election. Right,
1: and and Secretary Azar, don't forget him. Yes. So
0: yes, exactly. Or uh, you know, taking a nice opportunity like Don Jr. to take a big bite out of the libs or whatever. Those <laughs> as motivations for speaking don't tend to generate excellent data.
1: You are absolutely right. And that's one of the things that's frustrated me so much about the, if you will, risk communication that the Trump administration is currently do. The Wednesday press conference, the Saturday press conference were awful. Wednesday was an F. Uh, Saturday was probably a D minus only because it wasn't as bad as Wednesday. But you can't have somebody like Mike Pence, who is known not to tell the truth, and get out there and try to convince you of stuff that you know is wrong and then expect that you're gonna believe anything else he says. And so that has been a problem. He, for example, had a major issue, which was challenged during the press conference on Saturday, if I'm recalling this right, everything blurs together when you have the events, uh, you know, one after the other. But he was challenged on his record on public health in Indiana, which wasn't great, Mm -hmm. in terms of not approving in a timely manner, needle exchanges to help prevent HIV, AIDS, uh, epidemic in Indiana, and uh, that's the kind of thing that makes him not the best messenger for this. Further, politicians uh, look look at what they do for a living. They tend to exaggerate and make promises they can't keep. So when you have a politician in the situation of telling the truth, which is what you want here, right? They're suspect. So how does that play out? It makes HHS and Secretary Azar a little afraid of Trump's wrath if he. Sounds alarmist. So anybody at CDC, like Nancy Messonnier or, or uh, Anne Schuchat, who says, look, this is an if, it's when, it's going to be, and we just have to see how bad, he gets mad at them, doesn't allow them to speak and cuts them out and pushes Azar and HHS to make decisions based on that narrative of it's not that bad and we're going to contain things. And the end result is we have terrible decisions about uh, testing and mistakes made in terms of uh, not seeing that we're not just trying to keep the virus out and therefore we have to beef up the borders. We also have to do surveillance to see what happens when it's here and where else it is. So that's exactly a situation where the narrative pushed the numbers and the numbers were artificially low because it fed a narrative.
0: If we take out The voices of self-interested parties. I know this is impossible, but Uh this is an an effort to imagine us as people as purely biological instead of anthropological. And we track, I mean, epidemiology, it seems, has a more predictive power than some other discourses like political science. Uh Um, And we know something about how epidemics move and if they indeed as dr fauci says you know turn into pandemics and quote outbreaks yep so w- what would happen if we did virtually nothing if we went about our lives treated it like a bad flu and you know would it spread to everyone and you know 3% of the of the population would die would it what would happen
1: well what would probably happen to the best that we know is that over the next year and these numbers come from Mark uh, Lipsich, who's a wonderful epidemiologist uh, who uh, works at Harvard and has talked about this. Over the course of the next year, 40 to 70% of the population would probably get this virus, but it would be really mild like people get the cold for Mm -hmm. most people. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you're talking about that scale, even if the uh, case fatality rate of 2%, those who get the virus 2% die, Mm -hmm even if that's too high, and it probably is, uh, and it's lower than that. Uh, Seasonal flu is 0.1%. And as we already talked about, that's 60,000 deaths a year, and that's a lot. So if it's higher than that, that means more than that per year in this country. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, kind of a big deal, even though it's not panic time. Uh, There is a burden on the health system when stuff like that happens. Of course, it's going to hit the poor the hardest. They don't necessarily have health care, even if you do, if you're afraid to go because either somebody's going to deport you or because there's a copay you can't afford, you may delay care. So all of these things snowball. And the bottom line is emergency rooms become overcrowded as it is. With flu season, so if you're going to add a second worst flu season to the already bad flu season, then you get emergency rooms that can't cope with the uh, heart attacks and and, uh, car accidents and the other stuff they're built to do. So it has a ripple effect throughout the health system that just hurts everybody. So that's why it's a big deal, although a death or or another second death, like in uh, uh, Washington state, is far more dramatic than those sorts of numbers.
0: So speaking of emergency rooms, and I think about the way kind of, well, the way after nine eleven, or the way during AIDS that, that during the height of the AIDS epidemic that sort of new kinds of ways of taking care of people um emerged and and, um you may have seen this I had some family pride um thinking through the spanish flu the 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 first influenza almost exactly hundred years ago. Um, my grandfather was in the Navy for World War One and stationed in Bermuda, where you can imagine he didn't see a lot of combat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he did set up a hospital, very, very religious Catholic yeah he and, was a
1: doc doing good there
0: exactly he he set up a hospital to treat every people with with influenza, and as the story goes. Basically, everyone got it except him, the doctor, and the nurses. They were protected by God. Somehow, it is amazing to me how doctors like yourself move to think about how you can help. And there's something strange that happens where doctors seem—maybe I'm just being superstitious—but they seem disproportionately to not get the thing. Is that just because you're super cautious? Is it because, in general, you're in good health? Or am I just do I just have my numbers wrong?
1: Well, you know it it depends upon the illness. If you think about SARS, yeah, which really hit big in Toronto in if my years are correct somewhere around two thousand and three, mm-hmm. that was a nosocomial infection, that is to say, it went through hospitals, and it was the healthcare workers mm. in particular that were hit hardest. Oh, and that was a coronavirus.
0: And why did that travel most in hospitals?
1: Well, it turned out it wasn't all that infectious, but it was infectious enough. And at the beginning, if you didn't realize that this is something you were dealing with, something that would you know not have a 2% fatality rate, but a 10% fatality rate, and you didn't realize that that's what you were dealing with, you didn't take proper precautions and didn't use the proper personal protective equipment, PPEs in the trade. Mm-hmm. Then you were going to get exposed, and you were going to expose other people. And the next thing you know, you have a hospital-based infection, and that's bad.
0: Hospital-based. And infection.
1: so, uh, yeah. what happened with SARS is that's how kind of it worked. And so, it was the doctors and nurses in the front line that were that were the most exposed. Other illnesses are uh, look. If you take normal precautions, universal precautions, we call them, and wash your hands a lot, mm-hmm. and you know do those sorts of things, you can protect yourself. I'd like to tell you that doctors are better at washing their hands than regular folks, but that's mm-hmm. not true. Nurses are. Um, and so what happens is if you take those universal precautions, you can decrease your risk a little bit. As pediatricians, we get everything because we already had everything.
0: Uh-huh. yeah
1: Yeah. right now because it doesn't seem to be, and we don't know why, kids aren't getting that affected. It doesn't mean they're not infected. It just means that they're not getting affected. And maybe- I mean, here's here's complete speculation without any data. There are other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, and maybe kids are sick all the time, and that uh, protection lasts a couple of years, Mm. so the kids get it, but by the time you get to be an adult, it's worn off, and so you get very sick. That's just one explanation. But if the kids don't get it, then uh, the pediatricians don't get it. When the kids do, uh, you know, school teachers have had everything.
0: That is incredibly interesting, especially in light of the fact that people have called attention to the closing of schools in Japan and that the possibility that the schools will close in the U.S. or maybe in affected areas. But but not just that. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's go back to 2009. Okay. And the uh, pandemic flu preparedness we were doing for that pandemic that hit that year. Okay. And the way the federal government is organized is kind of different mindsets. There's the national uh, response framework, which really from 9-11 and 2001 kind of dictates how you respond to an emergency. But different agencies had have different mindsets. This is something people don't usually think about, but when you get exposed to it, it kind of hits you in the face. Mm-hmm. So there's the DHS kind of thinking, which is more military, football, you know, everything's organized, chain of command, who's the incident commander, that sort of thing. And then there's the HHS, which is much more the, the individual lone doctor House, Marcus Welby, MD, mm-hmm. and if you stick him in the military, how does that work? What do you get? You get mesh, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and so, to a certain extent, the interface between those two mindsets is difficult to manage unless you've practiced doing it. Yeah. And so, what happens is for a big, giant response that the government plans, that kind of interface uh, needs work, and so back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we did exactly that. What happens if we get a really bad pandemic? What do you do at schools?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it turns out, that's a very difficult question to answer. Which is a long way of saying maybe Japan's not doing it right. Hmm. We don't know, for example, whether or not kids are getting sick and they're the vector. And if you close schools, that means the parents have to deal with the kids who are home. What do you do with them? If they're teenagers, they go to the mall. So it's the same thing. What have you done? Mm-hmm. And if it's little kids, you got to stay home and take a day off of work, which you may not have the ability to do. Maybe you don't have, uh, you know, family leave or sick leave or, or, or this or that. So closing schools is a really fraught thing. And we know this not because the doctors figured it out, but because the emergency managers helped to figure it out. And that's why you need an all hands deck team approach to try to figure out how to approach these things. Now that Japan has done this, that's fine. But was it really the smart thing? Did it really do anything? We don't know. It's certainly going to affect the economy if you do something like that, because people, again, at work are going to be affected. If you can do it social distancing, we call it. It has a name. That's a great thing, but not everybody's in that situation. And so if you can do what's called containment, which is not to stop disease, but slow it down, then you give the uh, workforce, including the employers, a chance to figure out what level of social distancing are they capable of and what can they do mm-hmm. so that when it comes to something like that, we are a little bit better prepared? And sorry for the soapbox, but that that's the kind of stuff we ought to be doing now that Pence and the guys speaking aren't giving people a chance to do because they keep minimizing it.
0: When do they find out things like you just mentioned, this idea that ch- the kids might, might or might not be a vector, in which case schools could begin to drive or drive coronavirus, when do we find out? Like, I know that so far, as you mentioned, the disease has seems to be less severe in children, or the virus is less virulent in children. but right. th- this this idea of children being a vector, how to how do epidemiologists even begin to? to figure that out. And also, as you say, we're rolling along. We've got an economy. We've got to, we have to get their, forget about getting their educations. You know, I was thinking, well, I might be able to take the day off, but I definitely cannot homeschool.
1: Right, exactly. Um,
0: and uh, so things are rolling along. We should find out at least if, you know, if school is, before we even imagine social distancing or figure it out, it'd be nice to know where transmission is happening.
1: You need the data. And in order yeah. to do that, you have to have proper testing and surveillance Right now, the testing that we're doing, as little as we're doing, and it's inadequate, has been for diagnostic purposes. Mm. But it hasn't been surveillance. It isn't, you know, how many people in this community are sick and how many people are well. It's, oh, you look like you may have symptoms. I better check you. Yes, you do. No, you don't. That's not the same thing. So we're just now only getting up to speed in how to do the diagnostic testing, but it has to be expanded beyond that to do surveillance so we have a better idea of what's happening in the community. And that's where the epidemiologists and the CDC teams really come in. Mm -hmm. They try to put the fire out by figuring out case contacts for who's sick right now, but then they expand beyond that and say, okay, what's going on in the community? And we're behind the eight ball because we should have been doing this a month ago uh, when it was clear that uh, China was having an issue in the first Place. The very first moment that happened, we should have been starting to prepare for it.
0: Well, OK, so what I, sometimes I just want to skip all the tools of of uh, prognostication and just get to what do you think is going to happen? Like, what do you what's your what's your theory of the case?
1: My theory of the case is that it's going to not burn out and turn into a fifth coronavirus that we get every season. We already have four, and they caused a common cold, and nobody cares. But uh, there may be a fifth one. There may be a flu and coronavirus season that that happens, you know, between September and April, hmm. and that may be what we're stuck with in a year or two.
0: Yeah, it, that it occurred to me during Hurricane Sandy in New York. Like this is the uh, this the new is normal, as we like the to new say. normal exactly, and that there's that it's. it's seasonal and we can...
1: But we don't know that. That's our hope. But we don't know that. Remember that the 2009 pandemic started over the summer and hit in September before things even got started. When it came back in a second wave, Mm -hmm. 1918 came back in waves. It's flu. It's not coronavirus. Does coronavirus have waves? We don't know. So is it going to go away in warm weather? We don't know. And there's so much that we don't know that it's very difficult to look ahead and say, well, this is what's going to happen we can certainly talk about what could happen, but then again, we can also talk about what we do know. And what we do know is we need to do better surveillance so we can start answering some of these questions. And we need better data from countries like China, whose numbers, frankly, we don't completely trust because mm-hmm. they have a uh, a good record of telling us stuff and a good record of not telling us stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we don't know. Uh that, if, for example, are we getting all the numbers out of China, including the people who aren't that sick or only only telling us about the sick ones? We don't know. Right. Um, and there's there's some recent data today suggesting maybe there's a lot more people there who were ill. So it's a much bigger infection. And yet they're not as sick. And that'll bring the uh, how many people die number down, which is good. And we don't know. Or is it early? And so we don't know what the death rate will be because it takes a while for that to show up. That's what's happening in Korea right now, South Korea. So we don't know with a new infection what's going to happen a month from now. We want to, just like we want to know the results of the primary tomorrow. We want to know it today. And that's why I keep using the political analogy. There's a lot of uncertainty that we have to manage. And that's one of those uncertainties that we're kind of used to. So I'm just trying to put that in perspective. But what what, what I'm trying to say, though, there's a huge framework for this. And a lot of this work has been done. Tony Fauci was absolutely right when he said that. Mm. It's not that we're starting from scratch. We did this 10 years ago. We have a pretty good idea of the framework. But there's a lot of the, you know, it's like uh, uh, having a good plan for the football team, but we didn't have any practices. And so on that first day, everybody's going to look a little bit awkward.
0: Yeah, I maybe have been the only one, but I was somewhat... Uh, reassured by by Michael Bloomberg's relatively fact free ad, you know, which was basically to say he'd be much better at handling something like this than the current president. But just because he listed the diseases that had come to New York where I live that w- when he'd been mayor, just even re- being reminded of West Nile, re- being reminded that we've done this before, yes, and that if you read decent sources, if you talk to people who use scientific method, up to and including admissions that they don't know right? That there's gaps in what we know. I don't want to be reassured, right? Like the market or a Trump voter. I don't want no, a simple we reassurance. We want the truth. Right. That's all. Yes, you want just, the
1: truth. Just just tell the truth.
0: I'd also like to know, and I think our listeners would too, how we can, not to get too corny, but be of service in this time. So, I mean, is there, what are you and your colleagues as doctors doing um, at Danbury Hospital? And, and and what are other professionals planning to do I and mean, do you have a setting that's like SARS is coming and this is what we, we need new protocols?
1: Well, the professional uh, response is a little different because a lot of it is invisible.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: standing up these emergency operation centers. Remember I mentioned there's this national framework that yeah. was uh, DHS kind of. So what you have is a operation center which is staffed by professional emergency managers and part of their job is to interface between the docs and the first responders, police, and the uh, risk management, risk communication messenger people so that messages can be crafted that therefore will help. And let me just give you a quick example. Uh, My friend, JJ McNabb, who's a reporter who follows um, a lot of the three percenters and and, uh, militia folks. Mm. Uh, So I I, I happened to follow her on Twitter, Mm -hmm. gave an example of uh, experience she had with one of her friends just like in the last 24 hours, and this was in Maryland. And what happened is that uh, some people felt a little ill and were worried about coronavirus. And the message they got from their uh, provider was, uh, we don't have the facilities to test for this virus to go to the hospital. And the message from the hospital was, if you're not that sick, don't come here, go talk to your provider. Mm. And that's common. That happened early on in 2009 as well. So you have to stand up that operation center, get everybody in the room and say, look, this is the message that we're going to have. We're going to tell everybody, don't see anybody. If you're worried, well, you don't have to go see your doctor. You'll mm. just get sick in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. And if you are sick, here's what you need to do. If you have shortness of breath, cough, fever, and feel bad enough that you have to see somebody, go to the emergency room, but call ahead so that they'll know to expect you don't go to your doctor. They're not equipped to handle it. Um, You know, that kind of thing. But that has to be system by system. In other words, your system has to agree that that's going to be the message and everybody has to say the same thing. And that's how you help the public by whoever you call, everybody's going to tell you the same thing. And that's a really helpful thing. What's bad is if you call and you get nine different messages, now you don't know what to do and now you're mad at everybody. And so you have to anticipate that and fix it in advance so that that doesn't happen. That's what you have to do at the professional level. At the individual level, go to social media, find hmm. the reporters you trust. I can name names and follow them and then go ahead and look at uh, CDC and, and uh, reputable sites and don't get your information from Bob's coronavirus page.
0: You know, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> or uh, or good. from uh oh who's the you probably saw that the um Jim. Gym- what was his name, the, the beaker, the you know, the televangelist who went to jail for all yeah, fraud Jim and all Baker kinds of things, right? Is, is selling a um you know a kind of panacea that will cure all coronavirus for $9.99 or whatever. Uh, don't um, drink bleach. Don't drink bleach. Don't
1: buy stuff that's not going to help you. Uh, Go to C D C and other places like that. Go to your local health department because remember public health is a local thing. It's a yeah. uh, state and local situation. Um, In Seattle, King County, Jeff Duchin and uh, the Seattle group are one of the best in the country. Same with New York City. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg can afford to say that because his New York City health department is one of the best in the country.
0: Yeah, you say his because you think the, the mayors do have an influence on... Well, they take credit. They take credit. Yeah, exactly. Um, the it, it does seem though that now we're in a mayor friendly period of thinking about governance. That that, and that all mayor all politics is local, right? Local. All politics is local. That that mayors are you know are maybe good to turn to. They tend not to be climate deniers or purveyors of misinformation, and they're familiar with the with the hospitals. Um, so one's local. Mayor, uh, Mayor's Office and news may be uh, another place to turn. I have I know everyone is is recommending the CDC site. Will you allay one of my fears? If I'm not a hypochondria sure. about virus, I'm a hypochondria about disinformation. Okay. And we know that the CDC has had uh, all kinds of very useful language purged from it, including vulnerable and 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 language associated with, I, I don't know what to say, with humane treatment of people suffering from diseases. How about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that worries me because, I mean, why do we know that the CDC is giving out good information? So
1: let me just uh, answer a question with a question because okay. that's how I was raised. And so what kind of information are you doubting? Is it the statistical information Mm. CDC probably has the base data there, but you can always go to European CDC, ECDC, and double-check mm. and see if it's the same stuff. That's mm. one way to do it. Uh, or you can just use uh, European CDC altogether or the British Health Service or something. You know, It, it depends what you're looking for. Are you looking for information, I, I'm saying to your listeners, about whether or not um, uh, Purell or other uh, brands of uh, hand sanitizer actually work? You can find that on CDC. They have a whole page about the science of whether or not to use hand sanitizers. And the answer is, if it's over 60% alcohol, it should help, but you're better off washing your hands. But that's the kind of information, reliable science information you can get from CDC. Okay. If you're talking about uh, what is the latest number of people who have been affected slash infected, that's going to be very slow. You're mm. probably better off getting that from the media. And the reason it's slow is because... Things have to go through almost a committee in order to get on CDC pages. And in a real life situation where stuff is breaking and happening all the time, it's too slow to look at that to get up-to-date information and feel confident about it. So it depends upon what kind of information you're looking for
0: the two two things I strongly t- I take away from this are we are, yeah, we're not to um, end times, but nor, you know, should we nor should we not wash our hands. How about that?
1: (laughs) Washing your hands is a great thing to do, even if you don't have a pandemic. And if you just get a little bit more, uh, here's what I would suggest. Uh, Next time you shop, pick up something extra, maybe an extra jar of peanut butter, maybe two. Keep one for yourself just in case. Donate the other to a food bank because they're going to need help too.
0: These are great ideas. Thank you so much for being here, Greg. Um, it's it's really, really great to talk to you voice to voice. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Greg Dworkin is a Daily Cost contributor and a pediatric pulmonologist and medical director of the Pediatric Inpatient Unit at Danbury Hospital in Danbury, Connecticut. That's it for today's show. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter. We live there part time. It's like a time sharing condo. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. We love our advertisers here, but how great would it be not to get ads at all, just to let Trumpcast and all of Slate's podcasts roll on free of interruption? You can get that, all the Slate podcasts ad-free, and so much more for only $35 for the first year Best of all, you'll have that moral high ground because you're supporting our work. Go to slatecom plus. Our show today was produced by Phil Circus and Melissa Kaplan, and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.